a Greek embrace. Um, and two kisses. Two kisses. Not one. In Iran and Russia, it's three. But uh, don't take notes on that. Any sort of geopolitics watches. Um, China is set to flood Europe with cheap microprocessors and electric vehicles. Israel is presently overseeing a second Nakba, war crimes, I think ethnic cleansing. The EU was looking at trying to start a, a run on the Hungarian currency. Uh, the United States is polarized and seemingly disoriented, potentially within years confronting a, a state of collapse. And a revolutionary state in the Middle East has pretty successfully blockaded a strategic choke point for global um, logistics. And it's only February. <laughs> it's only February. And what this tells us is we do live in a moment of profound disruption, transformation, change. And I don't mean that in the platitudinous, cliched way we've been told for the last 25 years. It's actually happening. Um, some of these changes are once in a generation, some once in a century, some once in several centuries. So big times and big events call for big ideas. And I can't think of anyone better to discuss big ideas uh, than this evening's guest, Yanis Varoufakis. He's a former finance minister, academic, economist, author. His most recent book, Techno-Feudalism, I believe it's available to buy at the front. I saw him signing copies uh, very fastidiously earlier on. It's an outstanding book, outstanding book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yanis, thanks for joining us on Downstream IRL. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here. It's so good to be together with so many people after the lockdown years of solitude and two-dimensional zooming and you know just the, the, the complete disconnection that we all felt during that time. Thank you, Aaron, for doing this. Thank you to Novara Media for uh, existing in a world where the media are complicit in genocide. So, what, shall we get, what, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about so much. Yeah, okay. I, I want to talk about uh, China, Russia, obviously we'll talk about Israel, Europe, the United States. We've only got an hour. That's the problem. Um, so we'll talk about that stuff for an hour. Firstly, how are you? How's life treating Yanis Varoufakis? You had a very frenetic few years. Look, I am remarkably well, to the extent that I, I feel guilty for being well in a world you know, we, that, that, that is constantly finding novel ways to depress us. Uh, it managed to get me really down back in June because um, our small but vociferous and I think very progressive party, Mera 25 in Greece, we had nine seats in Greece's parliament. We managed to lose them in June. Uh, and guess who won them? A fascist party called the Spartans. It's the in rebirth of the Golden Dawn Nazis. So I spent at least one month in serious depression, finding it very difficult to get out of bed. But I overcame it. 
and now I'm really well. But, you know, individually, we can be fine. We have a duty to be well, individually, but collectively, we are down in the dumps, aren't we? This is a terrible world. And uh, our political leadership, especially the leadership of the left, is chiefly responsible for the crimes against humanity and against logic that are taking place. Keir Starmer, my goodness, my goodness. Olaf Scholz in Germany, the SPD leader, uh, who is the leader of the left in Austria? I don't even know, because nobody cares. Um, they do have a communist mayor in um, Graz. Yes, indeed, indeed. You know, and they have, lighten, lighten the mood. You know. and, they have a, and they have an ultra-right supported government yeah. in Vienna. So, you know, we really need to pull ourselves together. And um, there is, the vast majority of people out there are good, decent, progressive people. And yet our political sphere is constantly jettisoning from, from within its ranks anyone who does not parrot the inanities, the serially insane inanities of the establishment or supporting policies like, for instance, genocide in Gaza. So I want to talk about lots of stuff, as I said, Europe, China, the US, but given this is what you feel very passionately about, you've started with this. Um, you said that the, the centre-left is, is complicit in what's going on in Gaza. Well, what's your view on that? Because, of course, a layperson might be watching or listening and thinking, well, look, the Tories are in power. Um, a different story, of course, with Joe Biden in the United States, a nominally progressive person who's really given carte blanche to Israel to do war crimes. Uh, why is Labour responsible when they're in opposition? Because the, if the opposition left-wing, centre-left party is supporting orchestrated genocide in Israel, that legitimizes the government that is supporting the orchestrated genocide of Palestinians in Israel, and it means that there is no hope for any representation of the people who say, hang on a second, massacres and the insidious ideology of Zionism, which is essentially white supremacism, settler colonialism, coupled with prison camps and massive extermination. That's what they are doing since 1948. And to have the left supporting that means that there can be no hope. I mean, if you're Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer has done your work for you in legitimizing your complicity in what's going on in Gaza. So on this point of, um, of Israel, what needs to be the um, quote-unquote solution? Because <clears throat> you just made a critique there of Zionism, which, it, again, somebody might hear that, feel an instant emotional response to it. But a lot of the things you're talking about have been well documented. It's at the very least a very virulent form of ultranationalism, at the very least. I don't think that's in any way deniable. How does this then get resolved? If, if that's the creature we're dealing with, or the world's dealing with, and it has the backing of, the, I think, probably the world's only military superpower. Aaron, it's very important that we do not pontificate to the people who live in the land of Palestine, in the land of Israel, what needs to be done. It's not our job to tell them what to do. Our job is to maintain the 
kind of narrative and political campaign which constantly supports universal human rights. That is our job. As Europeans, I feel we have a duty to accept 100% responsibility for all the crimes that are being perpetrated in the land of Israel-Palestine today. We Europeans are to blame. Not Hamas, not the Israeli settlers, not even Netanyahu. And I will explain that. Please, go on. I will explain that. For centuries, we've, we have been hounding Jews. From one pogrom to the next, Europeans, not just the Nazis, the British, the Croats, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Greeks, the Italians, we have been persecuting Jews for centuries. And then, of course, this series of pogroms and persecutions ended up with the Holocaust. The German Nazis are chiefly responsible for the Holocaust, but it's not just them. The Croat Nazis, the Greek Nazis, the Italian Nazis, the French Nazis under the Vichy government, the Estonian Nazis, the Lithuanian Nazis, the Polish Nazis, they were all complicit in the Holocaust. And then when it no longer was fashionable to be anti-Semitic after 1945, remember what King George said, the problem with Mr. Hitler is that he made the moderate kind of anti-Semitism impossible. Remember that? He said that in 1945. Um, okay, then Europeans adopted Zionism. Now, what is Zionism? It's not just that it is ultra-nationalist and right-wing and all that, no. Zionism, from where I'm standing, is summarized in the slogan that was invented in the early part of the 20th century, which is a land without a people for a people without a land. Now that is white supremacism. When the British disembarked in New South Wales, in Australia, immediately they declared the land of Australia to be terra nullius, an empty land, a land without a people. So the five and a half million Aborigines were simply not people. That was the beginning of genocide because when the moment you say five million people are not people, that's license to kill. It's license to massacre. It's license to genocide. So that was, you know, Zionism has many different currents within it. There are left-wing Zionists, there are right-wing Zionists, there are socialist Zionists. But what they have in common is they do not recognize that the Palestinians existed or exist today. They talk about them as Arabs, that you know, they could have gone to some other country. The land is people-less. So you have the greatest, the most toxic alliance between anti-Semitism and white supremacism. That's Zionism. In the United States, have you seen those photographs of American Nazis with swastikas and flags of Israel? It, sound, it looks, at first, like a contradiction. How can you hold with one hand a swastika and with the other uh, the Star of David? Not if you are an American ultra-right-wing Zionist, because you believe that the Jews should all go there, yeah, in the same way that the Europeans went to the United States to kill off all the natives, Native Americans, 
go there so we don't have you in our midst. And if you are also a religious fundamentalist, you believe that the, you know, Jerusalem should be Jewish so that the second coming can come and Christ can then resurrect yeah. your dead These in, are all Min the, in Minnesota. All the sensible people who are you know, at the forefront of US politics. Um, yeah, so to, just to conclude the point. So, you know, we ha it's, perfectly point it's perfectly compatible to be an anti-Semite and a Zionist. You just want the Jews to go to Palestine. It's really very simple. You don't want them in Munich. You don't want them in London. You don't want them here, there. This was why truly anti-Semitic European political leaders were Zionists. They sided with Zionism. Okay? And since 1948, the Israeli apartheid state is trying to create a kind of confluence to bring together the slogan of the Zionists with the facts on the ground. The slogan of the, the, slogan of the Zionists was, still is, a land without a people, for a people without a land. And the facts of the ground was that there were lots of Palestinians there who, whom we need now to get rid of. That's what the job of the IDF is. So we are responsible for that, we Europeans are responsible for that because our guilt over the Holocaust, which is deserved, we should feel guilty for the Holocaust, we are responsible for the Holocaust, is being used as a cover and an excuse for the Israeli genocide of the Palestinians. Do you think that liberals, particularly in Europe, understand that actually Israel could be the future of European politics? I think it could be the future of the West, which is to say ethnically, religiously homogenous, uh, culturally homogenous, um, highly militarized, uh, you know, I, I was speaking recently to a, a Palestinian Instagrammer. Um, we'll be putting that, that interview on downstream on our YouTube channel. A remarkable man, you know, he's got 800,000 people on his account. He's a journalist, he's telling these stories. He lost his sister and her seven children in one go. And they're still in rubble. And I, I was hearing his story, the youngest was one month old. And then I go on my Twitter feed and people are complaining about feeling offended at a university campus. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I am. I don't like you to be offended. I don't like, you know, graffiti or whatever. That's bad. This is immeasurably worse. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that the center, people who claim to believe in the rule of law, human rights, don't understand the extent to which Israel is sabotaging, quote unquote, the rules-based international order or what exists of it. And we saw this decades ago with nuclear non-proliferation. It already happened. We weren't meant to have a proliferation of nuclear weapons. Israel develops one. Guess what? Saddam Hussein says, well, I want them. The Iranians say, well, I want them. And I think something very similar could actually start to happen with human rights. The demise of a belief in universalism, because you've got fascists right across Europe saying, this is, correct. This is exactly what we want. We want high birth rates. We want to kick the immigrants out. Uh, and we want to foster a sort of social, political, quote-unquote, solidarity, which is, which is based on the opposite of multiculturalism. So, so why are some liberals who claim to believe in all this stuff also backing a project which is the complete antithesis of it? Look, the reason why I'm a left-winger is because I'm not prepare, prepared to 
subcontract the concept of liberty to the so-called liberals who don't give a damn about liberalism. Look, take the authors of the American Constitution and its prelude, the Bill of Rights, which is an, a paean, a beautiful poem dedicated to freedom. Jefferson. Well, all these people had slaves. They were slave owners. And you know, Jefferson, even when he died, he did not live, he, 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 he did not put in his will a clause that would liberate his slaves. So the greatest poems in honor of liberty have been written by people who were slave owners. I think that tells you all you need to know about the hypocrisy of liberals. Similarly, you know, take Nick Clegg. Where did I remember? Why do I remember this Jefferson name? Jefferson's a Nick Clegg, wow. Why do I remember this name? He was the leader of the Liberal Party in that frivolous and ridiculous coalition with the Tories. Um, and one of the first things he did was to put his signature in legislation which severely restricted the basic human rights of the people of Britain against every principle of the Liberal Party. They are not liberal, these people. They claim, they, they use the term to deny the substance. But beyond that, and that connects with Jefferson. When Jefferson was talking about the beauty of freedom, he didn't mean it for worms, for chickens, or for blacks. He didn't mean it for half blacks like me from, you know, the Mediterranean, the so-called wogs. People that tan, tan well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 people who are deeply tanned or lightly tanned. So it all depends on, I mean, David Hume had this concept of concentric circles where you are, you are at, at the center of a series of concentric circles. And according to David Hume in his um, Treatise of Human Nature, the people who are further and further out of that series of concentric circles you care less for. So liberals are the people for whom those concentric, there's one circle that matters, you know, bourgeois white men, and maybe some honorary men who happen to be women, like Thatcher, for instance, you know, <laughs> or Giorgia Meloni, whoever, you know, does their bidding for them in the European Union or, you know, in the OECD or the IMF. Uh, and then immediately after that, there, there, there are the non-humans for whom there are no universal rights. And that circle of who, you know, the circle that determines the borderline separating and segregating the ones that legitimately have universal human rights and the ones who don't, that's quite malleable. Huh? So Saddam Hussein used to be, you know, they're friendly bastards. You know the joke as to how did, how did Blair and Cheney know that uh, he had uh, chemical weapons? They kept the receipts. <laughs> eh? 
remind, remind you, in 1983, there was an Exocet missile, Iraqi Exocet missile, bought by the, from the French, that um, hit uh, an American Navy ship, and quite a few sailors of the US Navy were killed. They sent Cheney back then to make friends with, you know, effectively pat him on the back, he said, okay, yeah, there was friendly fire. So that circle yeah, expands and contracts depending on the interests of the so-called liberal establishment. They are not liberal, they are just an establishment. On, on this point, this is remarkable. So this was a couple, I think it was a couple of hundred US Marines, I think, in the early 80s. They were killed by the Iraqis, yeah. nothing happens. And they were immediately forgiven because Saddam Hussein was their bastard. I remember, when I, I used to live in Britain then, and I remember, maybe Jeremy was, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn was w with us then. There was a group of us demonstrating outside the Iraqi embassy against Saddam Hussein, right? Because he killed tens of thousands of Kurds using chemical weapons provided to him by Britain. So we were here in London demonstrating outside the Iraqi embassy. And Thatcher's Metropolitan Police went for us as if we were the worst enemies of the state. With mountain police, they beat us up, they arrested us and all that. Imagine my, I have to use a Greek word, aporia, which means the sense of puzzlement. When a few years later, some years later, because people like me, and I'm sure you, and definitely Jeremy and Tony Benn back then, we opposed the notion that it was in the interest of humanity massively to invade Iraq and kill one million people. We were described as Saddam Hussein's handmaidens by the same people who were arming him back in 1983 and beating us up for protesting against him. You know, but that never ends. In 2001, back in Athens, at the University of Athens, I remember attending a Senate meeting. A meeting of the Athens University Senate. I was a professor. The government of Greece had just sent to the Senate a request that we bestow upon a certain Mr. Putin an honorary doctorate. And I was in a minority of one in the Senate calling him out as a war criminal because he had just killed 250,000 Chechens in order to solidify his regime. Today, I'm being called Putin's handmaiden. Again, it is never ending. Back then, Putin, in 2001, was the blue-eyed boy of the Western establishment. Not just the Greek one, the British one. Well, everybody thought that Putin was great. So, you know, where do, how, how did I start saying all this? I think you said it never ends, and then you answered it. But quickly on this. Oh yes, the, the hypocrisy of the liberals. They don't That's, give a damn we went, about freedom. We got that. Yeah. On Iraq, we don't know the half of it. We really don't know the half of it. Saddam Hussein was using industrial amounts of chemical weapons against Iran from 1980 to 1988. Not once, not twice, hundreds of times. I think we're talking almost 20,000 projectiles with chemical weapons. The Americans gave them the positions of Iranian forces, knowing he would use those weapons of, of mass They actually asked him to bomb them. Crazy! It, you see, and they're the good guys. They asked him to bomb them, 
to bomb Iran because Iran had just staged the anti-American Islamic Revolution. You remember the, 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 the standoff regarding the American diplomats in the Tehran U.S. Embassy and so on. And it, Saddam Hussein got his marching orders from the United States to invade Iran. He didn't invade Iran of his own accord. It was, and he was financed by the Emirates and particularly Kuwait. Well, this is, we will not detour into that was the reason why he then made Kuwait, because he wants them to forgive the war debt. Anyway, we've talked enough about Iraq. We've talked about Russia. We've talked about Blair. We've talked about Nick Clegg. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know what, what came over me. <laughs> something feels a bit out of kilter there. They are world historical figures and, and um, the head of communications for Meta. Anyway, um, uh, let's talk about the United States. Um, this is in the last several months, obviously, we're seeing events in the Red Sea, the complete inability of Joe Biden to rein Netanyahu in. Is this just a weak leader, a moment in history, or, or does this point to something else, which is really the demise of an empire which has been coterminous with a global capitalist economy over the last century? I wish I could agree with you that it's... Uh, that, that, that it reflects the waning of the power of the United States. I don't think it does at all. Uh, and I don't see any change at all. Was there ever a U.S. president that opposed Israel's genocide of the Palestinians, the Nakba, the Six-Day War? The Americans were behind them. You know, their satellites were guiding the Israeli missiles in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, today, every single piece of weaponry that the Israeli Army and Air Force and Navy have comes from the United States. As we speak, they give them those, you know, 10,000-pound bombs. As we speak, they're being delivered through Crete and Alexandrupolis to Greek ports. This, this is the, the route, not the Silk Road, but the, you know, the death road that American armaments take to reach Israel. Biden is not weaker than Reagan was, or Obama was, or Lyndon Johnson before that. There's been a consistent policy of treating Israel as America's bully in the Middle East. But it's not just Israel. So you've obviously got, and I'm not suggesting this is a good thing, you've got an increasingly belligerent, assertive Russia. You have an increasingly prosperous, technologically advanced China. Are we moving, I suppose, I'll rephrase the question, from a unipolar to a multipolar world, and what does that mean? Because you sound skeptical of the idea of us moving to multipolarity. Oh, there's certainly no multipolarity. There is, what there is is a new Cold War between the United States and China. That's all there is. Russia is insignificant. I mean, it's significant if you're a Ukrainian and you get bombed by them. There's no doubt about that. But then again, if you're in South Sudan and you are caught up in the civil war in South Sudan, your life is not better than it is if you are in Kharkiv or you know, parts of Donbass. But um, if, you look, if you want to look at the concentration of economic, financial, technological, and military power, you have to focus on the United States and on China. The European Union is the stupid continent. It is. I was talking to the, you know, to, um, to the president of Mexico 
Danai and I were visiting him some months ago in Mexico City, and you know, he's, he's a comrade, he's a friend, and he's the president of Mexico, right? Um, so he was telling me with pain in his heart that you know, he's very pro-European, uh, he's, he's culturally very close to Europe, he's under the belly of the beast, the United States, and he trades with China, and he says, he was asking me for some um, sources of hope that Europe will stop being irrelevant. And I couldn't provide him with any. Because we are deindustrializing, we've missed the next industrial revolution. So green tech and big tech, gone. We have nothing by which to compete with either the United States or China. And increasingly, we are stagnating and proving and reconfirming my allegation that it is a stupid and irrelevant continent. Uh, China? Significant. Russia? More significant than the Telegraph, the Times, and the Guardian would like to present it as, because you know there is this tendency to say that the Russian economy is only the size of Spain. Well, that's true if you measure it in terms of dollars. But the people in Russia don't use dollars. They use rubles. And so it's not a question of how many dollars do they have by which to buy bullets. The question is how many rubles they have with which to buy Russian bullets. And they have quite a few of those. Um, so, but, but there is no dynamism. It, it is shrinking demographically. There is emigration from Russia, not just now because of this, ever since the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, so, but you know, the, the, the main concern is um, the new Cold War that Donald Trump started against China. And you know, I mean, we had this discussion back in, when, when was it, in October, of, because it's part of, part of the chapter six of my book. My, I, had a, I, had a, I was puzzled by why would Trump start a Cold War against China? You remember, it started when he banned a telecommunications company, Chinese one, Huawei, from functioning in the United States. And, and then he banned another one, Z, ZT. And then another one, and then he introduced serious uh, tariffs on aluminum exports and so on. And of course, maybe one, you know, one could say, ah, that's Trump, what do you expect? He's a madman. But then Joe Biden gets elected. And instead of reversing this Cold War against China, he turbocharged it. He went as the Australians say, apeshit. <laughs> Full on. He introduced a bill by which he banned all sales of advanced microchips to China. This is like saying to Beijing, we will do whatever we can to prevent you from becoming an advanced, technologically advanced country. That's an economic war, a declaration of economic war. So the, my, you know, I, I was puzzled by that, and I was asking myself, why would they do that? If you ask American diplomats, politicians, media people, they say, oh, Taiwan. Come on, pull another one. Why is Taiwan significant? Oh, because they want to invade it. Yes, they wanted to invade it in 1950. In 1960, 1970, when Bill Clinton was doing his utmost to induct China into the World Trade Organization, and all the iPhones were being produced in Shenzhen and, you know, and Shanghai and so on, 
They wanted to invade Taiwan back then. They claimed it to be their own. So that, that can't be the reason. That didn't change. That is, and then you know, when they tell me about but they are uh, spying on us. What? The Americans are complaining that somebody is spying on them? <laughs> the NSA is spying on all of us. Every single one of us, including Sunak. They know what he says better than he does because he forgets very easily. <laughs> right? So it can't be that. So, and you know what my explanation is. I told you last time, but these people were not there. Um, China is the only country that has developed this new form of, ca of capital, which I call cloud capital, which is the part of capital which, when it accumulates, bestows upon its owner the most power. It's the cap capital that lives inside your, your phone, the algorithmic AI-driven capital, which is not new. It's been happening now 10, 15 years. If you think about it, there is no British or European competitor to Google, to Facebook, to um, Amazon.com, to Uber, to Airbnb, to any of these platforms. None. No British, no German, no French, no Indian competitor to them. China has a bigger and better version of each one of them in China. And not only that, but there is an application called WeChat that belongs to Tencent, which, imagine an application, we don't have it here in Europe, or in Britain if you don't want to be considered European. I don't know why well, you wouldn't, but maybe you don't. Um, you don't have an, an app that allows you to watch movies, like Netflix, to call a, car, a cab, like Uber, to send tweets, to do that, and on top of that, to send money, to pay, to make payments, for free to anyone in the world. For free, no fee. No banking fee attached. That app doesn't exist in the West. The Chinese have it. So, to the extent that the United States remains hegemonic because they have the monopoly of all payment systems. When you pay anybody, even within Britain, that payment finds its way through to the other person, to the person to whom you are making the payment, through a system totally controlled by the United States. Not by the Bank of England, not by England or the European Union, totally by the United States. This is why... Explain that, because people don't understand, if you're using Visa or PayPal, people get that. Well, Visa and PayPal are all American. But a, a, bank, a, bank, so a bank transfer, how is mm. that? Well, the, it is possible for a payment to be made within Britain um, without going through one of the filters that go through Washington. But Washington has the means to press a button and stop you from making a payment from Lloyds Bank to NatWest within London. After the Second World War, Europe and Britain had no payment system. We were, you know, in ashes after the Second World War. The continent of Europe was in genuine ashes, and Britain was bankrupt. So when Bretton Woods rebuilt the financial system through the system of central banks, the Bank of International Settlements and all that, SWIFT, you, have you seen the acronym SWIFT? All this system is an electronics payment system, a messaging system, which messages one bank, you know, 
10 pounds, 35 pence is going from here to there. That system is totally controlled by the United States because it was the United States that created it after Bretton Woods in 1944. And that remains to this day. So to go back to the question then of, are we seeing, I don't say the end of American empire, I completely agree with you there, but the demise of it, retreat potentially from certain parts of the world, maybe West Asia. Um, what we saw late last year, what when did really you see the last... the, that retreat taking place? Pardon? When did you, where did you see that retreat taking well, place? Well, I, I, okay, so if I, anything, they are increasing their presence in West Asia. I think. Well, no, but this is the thing. So again, I'm sure many people here of everybody is, you know, Navarra potentially supporters. I hope or Navarra viewers or listeners, high information people. But lots of people don't know that, you know, there have been over 100 attacks on U.S. armed uh, forces in Syria, Iraq. Mm. You've had the Iranians take boats on one side of the Arabian. Peninsula, you've obviously got the Red Sea mm. on the other. There is, a, there is a region at war right now. Sure. And it's a war against the United States. I mean, we're not, it's not reported as such. Anything, by the way, which happens against the US, Iran-backed. No, it's Iraqis in Iraq against Americans in Iraq. That's Iraqis. But Iran-backed organizations, apparently, across the, across the region. Mm. And, it, and it does feel like it's, um, it's a pivotal moment, actually, for US empire in that part of the world. And look, I'm not suggesting it's going to retreat, it's out, but it seems to be under greater pressure militarily, politically, in West Asia as the cutting edge of all of this than it has been for a very long time. And that, you could repeat the same argument with regards to Taiwan. And of course, they've been saying it for a long time. The point is now China can execute something like that in a way it couldn't have 30, 40 years ago. I would like to go off at the at a tangent, just for one, one minute, and then come back to the I question about the United States and China, because you mentioned Iran. I am very conflicted, very conflicted, because on, one, on the one hand, my heart and my mind is committed and dedicated to the woman life freedom revolution within Iran against the theocracy. These are our comrades, woman life freedom. At the same time, what the Americans want to do by overthrowing the regime in Iran is create another fragmented, destructive regime like the one they in inflicted upon Iraq. So how, that's why I'm saying I'm conflicted. I do not want Iran to be defeated by the United States and to see the United States victorious in that part of the world. But at the same time, I do not want to see the regime in Iraq, in Iran, maintain its authority over particularly the women, because we have gender apartheid in Iran. Okay? So I just wanted to state it for the record that I'm confused and in conflicted. I close the parenthesis. Let's go back now. Um, unfortunately, this confrontation between the United States on the one hand and Iran on the other, alongside with various you know, forces amongst the Kurds, amongst the Iraqis, amongst the Houthis and so on, who may be backed by Iran. It's not a bad thing to be backed by Iran. Um, they, are, they have agency though. The Houthis are not being directed by Iran. They may receive weapons from Iran. It's like saying that you know, the Vietnamese were uh, because they were backed by the Soviet Union, that they were directed by the Soviet Union. They were not. They were fighting a national liberation struggle. And they would accept weapons from wh whoever gave them. 
nevertheless, I don't see if, if if I were in the Pentagon, I would not be worried about the developments on the military terrain. What I would be worried about are the developments on the fintech, the financial technology um, terrain, because the Chinese with WeChat, and in particular, something I haven't mentioned yet, the digital currency of the Central Bank of China, they are cre creating circumstances that can easily undermine the monopoly that the dollar has on international transactions. Because all the power of the Americans, of the United States, this whole panoply of force is based on the US dollar. The American economy is becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the world economy. The American economy is highly in the red. They have a huge trade surplus, uh, sorry, huge trade deficit since 1968. They have a huge budget deficit, 6.5% every year budget deficit. So they need other people's money. They are the only empire in the history of humanity who are growing stronger the more they are in the red. What allows them to do that is that they print the world's currency, the dollar. So if you are a capitalist, a German capitalist, a Chinese capitalist to this day, right? Um, you need to sell to the Americans in order to make your own profits. So you sell to the Americans, the Americans buy in dollars, they have a deficit, and you get dollars. So you're a Chinese capitalist in Shanghai or in Frankfurt, and you have all these dollars. And so what do you do with these dollars? You cannot spend them in Germany or in China, so you take them to Wall Street, and you invest them in real estate, in shares, primarily in American debt. So you're financing the American government to build the armies and to have the aircraft carriers in the East. So that, that is the nexus around which American power revolves the dollar. The Chinese threaten that because now, if you are a capitalist, if you are a moneybags, if you are Saudi Arabian, with lots and lots of billions, you know, somebody from Abu Dhabi, an Indonesian magnate, a Malaysian magnate, you are really thinking twice about putting all your eggs in the dollar basket. Why? Because you've seen that the Americans just confiscated 400 billion of dollars of Russian money. I'm not going to pass judgment on that. This is not a discussion of whether they should have done it or not. It's a fact, they did it. So if you are a sheikh from Dubai, or a stinking rich, usually bastard, from Indonesia, right? Because to be stinking rich in Indonesia, you can't be a good person, right? Or in Greece, for that matter. And you have all these billions. You think, well, they got pissed off with Putin's men, and they took their money. What about me? I'm not the best guy in the world. Maybe they will get pissed off with me tomorrow. So you're not going to put all your money in the Chinese digital currency, but you will put some of it in there, just to, me, <laughs> yeah, to plan B in a case hedge. the Americans come. And that is a clear and present danger for American hegemony. That is why, and here is my explanation, you have the new Cold War. The Americans are attacking the technological evolution of 
Chinese fintech, the combination of big tech and the financial sector, because they want to kill this payment system from, you know, before it grows up and challenges the American dollars, the American dollar digital system. So on the, uh, the microprocessors thing, which you mentioned, which was the, this embargo last year, we're not going to send microprocessors to China, smaller than a certain size, which is in all the latest applications. By the way, I think last year, China spent more on importing, I mean, not last year, but the year before that, on microprocessors than on uh, petrol. The amount of money it spends on this stuff is absolutely extraordinary. And by the way, that's the large consumer of petroleum in human history. They're spending more on importing microprocessors. Um, so, this is obviously a significant part of US strategy, and I think that's undeniable. They want to undermine their ability to create AI applications, you know, 5G internet, et cetera, et cetera, for sure. Uh, but on the, on the point of um, uh, infrastructure, I want to sort of dovetail this now with Europe, because you're saying Europe's over, right? But you're saying there are these two yep. powers, there's this play now between China and the United States. Europe clearly has to make some kind of a choice. Now, what or maybe not, maybe you won't say that. What I find really interesting here in Britain, we're at the front line of this whole debate is Huawei gets kicked out a couple of years ago now. They got the email from Washington, yeah, kicked them it. out, and they did as they were told. Yeah, and they were build, building 5G, uh, 5G infrastructure at the time. And I'm sure people here know this, we don't have 5G in this country. Your phone might say 5G, it's no quicker than 4G. It's a lie. Uh, we have placebo 5G. It's true, because the Chinese aren't building it anymore. That's what, and that, that is a very material consequence of throwing ourselves all, alongside the United States. Uh, we don't have a, a level of technological innovation we should have. If we, we, we keep on hearing from all the politicians, we want to be you know, high-tech, high-productivity. Our 5G doesn't work. The 5G that's built in Tajikistan by Chinese engineers is going to be better. So from a European perspective, when it comes to things like 5G or, or effective, efficient payment systems and so on, is it a question of, and this is very relevant for Greece, Yanis, because you're geographically a lot closer, right? Will that new Silk Road go all the way to Epirus and Athens? What's your, what's your read on that? Well, on the question of um, the technological backwardness of your telecommunication system here in Britain, I have some good news for you. <laughs> Germany is worse. <laughs> Rejoice. They still use faxes in their ministries. No, seriously. Seriously. German ministries are still run on faxes. Why? Because of austerity. Because of austerity. Because for 15 years, tighten, belt tightening of the German state means they didn't invest in technologies. They have fallen behind. This is why now Germany is deindustrializing. Allow me to, to, to make this point because it, I think it, it is really crucial. And then I'll come back to Britain and Silk Road and all that. Uh, take the electric car, which is the future. You may not like them. I personally don't like them because I'm old fashioned and I like to hear the petrol engine. Don't tell my friends in the Green Movement that. Okay? <laughs> I'm an old motorcyclist, what can I do? I, I, I did ride once an electric motorcycle. It was really very powerful, fantastic. I hated it. <laughs> Didn't smell it of anything. Anyway, um, again, close the bracket. Now, the electric car is, a, is, is the 
um, death of the German car industry. Not that there will not be car production in Germany. They will be producing as many cars as they were before the electric car. But that's not where the comparative advantages of German industry. Their comparative advantage was in making very high precision gearboxes and reciprocating, reciprocating engines. Electric cars have much lower value added. And what value is to be extracted comes from what I said before, the cloud capital. Let me put it this way. A Tesla may cost quite a bit of money to buy. But Elon Musk is going to be collecting monies from anyone who has bought Tesla forever, not just at the point of sale. When you buy a Volkswagen, Volkswagen gets a certain wad of money from you, and that's it. After that, maybe whatever spare parts you purchase for, from them to service the car. But Tesla, because, you know, Tesla, you, did, did you know that Elon Musk can switch off your Tesla? You, you, you know, you, you drive out of the car dealer, you have your beautiful, all gleaming, all singing, all dancing Tesla. Elon Musk can decide, Kate Smith, your car is off, presses a button, and through a satellite, it completely, you know, it's like I, Apple can switch off your, your iPhone if it wants. It won't do it, but it, and it, it already in the United States, I don't know whether you know that, if you buy a second-hand Tesla and you do not register it with a Tesla dealer, they switch it off. You can't drive it. Which also works the other way around, because Tesla knows, gathers information as to what music you're listening to when you're going to your child's school. Where did you go yesterday? What mood were you in? Because it's simply, it, it, it has a capacity to hear your conversations in the car or the conversations you're having with people using your phone. So it has all this data from you. Tesla sells this data on a daily basis. This is what I mean by the power of cloud capital. Huh? Volkswagen doesn't have that. Doesn't own the cloud. Doesn't have anything like that. Europe, that's why Europe is behind. China has it. Have you heard of a company called BYD? Build your, build your dream? It's, it's almost as big as Tesla now. I think, it's, I think it was bigger, bigger for one day and then it went back or anyway. Yeah, it's huge. It's big. And it will be much bigger. Okay, they have all that. So it is America and it is China. And we here have missed the boat when after 2009, when the Bank of England was printing money, the European Central Bank was printing money. I mean, the loss of the election in 2017, our loss, you know, when Jeremy didn't win, was pivotal. Because if in that Labour Party manifesto, you'll see that there was a policy, I know because I worked on it with John McDonnell, um, for creating a public investment bank, the purpose of which would be to issue bonds, like McDonald's issues bonds, right? To the tune of 200 billion, remember the 28 billion that Rachel Reeves, no, that would be, the, the point of that would be to issue bonds of worth 200 billion every year with the support of the Bank of England, not to be repaid by the taxpayers, that would not be added to the public debt because it would be a separate bank. And the whole point would be that that would go into green tech. Now, that, if that had happened from, let's say, 2018 onwards, there would have already been six years of these very large investments 
in green technology in Britain. We could have done the same thing in the European Union. We didn't do it. So now we are simply sitting on our dilapidated couches and watching the Americans and the Chinese go at it. And invent the future. So to go back to my previous question then, who, who, who do we throw our lot in with? And on the question of 5G, this is probably quite salient because the Americans literally don't develop 5G. You've got Ericsson, sweet, um, and you've got the Chinese. Uh, and it is more tempting for countries further east to be part of what's been called you know, the New Silk Road, um, particularly somewhere like Greece. I mean, the UK are probably somewhat different. You know, and I, I think this is well with regards to um, high speed too. You know, people are saying cost overruns, how can we build it, how can we save money? You know what would be really easy? Get the Chinese to build it. You do it, but you'd save that, a lot of money. But Aaron, that's Thatcher. But we can't. That is Thatcher for you. She wantonly destroyed the capacity of the British industrial base to build things. She decided we don't want to build things. We're going to go straight to the service sector. We're going to have the city of London, financialization, gambling, and, you know, importing stuff to sell through Tesco's. Yeah, that, that, that's the business model that she developed. Uh, and Tony Blair considered that to be brilliant. So he turbocharged it further. And then you had the financial sector collapse in 2008, 2009. And since then, governments in Britain have been doing only one thing. Because they are such class warriors, and they are so loyal to the bourgeoisie of this country, to the aristocracy of this country, they have been printing trillions of pounds to refloat the ruling class while practicing harsh austerity against the British people. Now, this is not simply misanthropic and unjust and pretty disgusting, but it is also a sure recipe for stagnating British capitalism. So even if you are, you know, an old-fashioned 19th century liberal who believes in progress, you know, GDP growth and all that, um, which is consistent, of course, with climate catastrophe and all that, but nevertheless, even if that is your objective, the policies that have been pursued by governments since Thatcher, all governments, every single one of them, uh, have depleted the capacity of even British capitalism to be dynamic. So when Liz Truss was saying, oh my God, you know, uh, we have wasted all this time and uh, we, we, need, we need to re refocus on growth. What on earth are you talking about, Liz Truss? You've been part of a Tory party that has depleted the capacity of British capitalism to be capitalist. You see, the problem with British capitalists is that at some point, don't know exactly when that happened. They no longer wanted to be capitalists. They wanted to be rentiers. They wanted to sit in their mansions and to collect. They were not interested in making things anymore. The Chinese are making things. The Germans are making things. The problem with the Germans is because they are so austere and they stopped investing in making the next thing. And the, uh, and the Chinese came along and said, fine, we will do it. The Americans are always on top of the game because they either make other people make stuff for them and then magnetize into Wall Street their profits through this dollar payment system. 
Do you see what I, why I'm saying that we here in Europe, and I include Britain in Europe, whether you like it or not, that you know, we are, everybody around the world, even very impecunious people in Ghana, in Zambia, they are looking at us, and you know what they, what they see? Very stupid people. Um, so we've, we've talked about Europe, we've talked about the United States. I want to talk about Nord, uh, Nord Stream. What? Nord, you know, Nord Stream. Nord, Nord Stream 2. Yeah. Who did it? Nord Stream 1, you mean? Sorry, Nord Stream, well, the one that was blown up, sorry. Who, who did it? The United States. It's really very simple. It's really very simple. They've, you know, they've been, they've been saying it for years. Do you remember Miss Nuland? the Deputy Secretary of State. Victoria Newland, yeah. yeah. She actually had announced it ages ago that if, they, if the Germans don't stop importing natural gas from Russia, we will have to take measures. What, what more do you need? And in any case, I remember when it first blew up, they immediately, the BBC, the BBC, ITV, they all immediately blamed Putin. Now, why would Putin blow up the gas pipe with which he's selling gas to his best customers. To fund I mean, the war. He's a war criminal. He's a bastard. He's a neo-Orthodox fool. He's KGB. You can say all sorts of things about him. He's an awful, awful poor excuse of a human person. But he's not stupid. He wouldn't blow up his own gas pipeline. And now we already, I, I can't remember what, you know, but now there's plenty of evidence that it was the United States, and the United States are not even vociferously denying it. No. Yeah, they are, they are sort of winking at us. Yeah, it was us, but we're not going to say it was. But right? this, so there's two things here I want to I get at. So that was one of those stories where, the, and I, I sound crazy when I say that, I, mean, I sound crazy lots of the time, but, you know, the, the mainstream media was psyoping us. En masse. They were saying, this was Russia. I think this is... This, yeah, they were absolutely convinced. The last people who would be doing it, I mean, it's not implausible, but that is absolutely crazy assertion to make with so much weight and so much gravity. That was one thing. It was just one of those moments where I thought, wow, the media, there's not even an effort here at getting to facts, objectivity, truth, um, serving your audience at all, at all. Um, but then, secondly, politicians, particularly German politicians, didn't say anything. So at the very moment your people are being crushed by high energy prices, at the very moment your industrial class is, like you say, facing deindustrialization for a bunch of reasons, increased competition from China and whatnot, you just come out of COVID, uh, stagnation of the global economy obviously hit your exports. At that very moment, you've lost a really reliable, cheap source of energy, and your own domestic political class won't say who did it. Well, I mean, what does that say about Germans polit Germany's politicians, but also... Europe's political class. I mean, when they try and stop people like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I won't say Mr. Tsipras in Greece, he doesn't count, uh, but these sort of populist leaders from the left, when they try and destroy them and they give it so much uh, welly, is it precisely to stop people rising to the top in German politics, in British politics, in French politics, say, no, this was the CIA? Is that, is that the crux of the matter, fundamentally? The crux of the matter is this. Don't forget that the German constitution was written by Americans. Don't forget that the original deal between the Allies in 1944 was that German would be, Germany would be deindustrialized 
its factories will be destroyed. And indeed, 1,750 German factories were destroyed by the Allies in the process of turning Germany into a pastoral land, that is, to prevent it from ever rising up again. It was the Americans who sent their Secretary of State in 1946 to deliver a speech of hope in which effectively they said to the Germans, okay, we've changed our minds, we Americans have changed our minds, uh, and we are going to reindustrialize you. You're, going, you're, going, you're coming back in from the cold. The whole of German industry was built as a result of the decision of the United States to allow them to rebuild. They have a deep debt of gratitude to the United States and a complete dependence. It was all done on the basis of American loans. Remember 1950, <laughs> another little aside. I remember I was in the Eurogroup with you know, the German finance minister, the now late Wolfgang Schäuble and others, and he comes out and he starts delivering a, a speech on the sanctity of debt. A debt is a debt is a debt, and you have to pay every last euro to the last cent. And then when I took the floor, that's why they didn't like me, I said, I'm sorry, the only reason why you are representing industrialized Germany is because a debt is not a debt, is not a debt. In 1953, most of your debts were written off by the Americans, the British, and all the allies, including debts you owed to my country. So if you're an American industrialist, you owe the Americans. And it's not just a past debt, it's also a future debt. Because I mentioned that before, uh, Mercedes-Benz would stop operating tomorrow if it didn't sell Mercedes-Benzes to the United States. And these Mercedes-Benzes are being paid for with dollars that then Mercedes-Benz takes to the United States and invests in American property. So if you are Mercedes-Benz, or you know, a big shareholder of Mercedes-Benz, they are your god. You do nothing to disturb the sleep of the god who lives in Washington, maybe in California as well, right? So that, that explains, uh, and German politicians, they have one thing in common, whether they're on the left or on the right. They are cowards. <laughs> Complete and utter cowards. Look at what's going on now with, with Gaza. Even the left, my comrades on the left, I'm not talking to them anymore. You know, the Rosa Luxemburg Center, named after the fantastic Rosa Luxemburg, which is in, I used to have a good relationship with these people that were my comrades. You know, they banned a Palestinian author from making a presentation in their theater because she was Palestinian recently. That's why I'm saying all German politicians, every single one of them, are cowards. And they have this thing. The fear of the tall poppy syndrome. That if they, you know, are a poppy that's a bit taller than the other ones, you know, raises its hand, its head above the, above the parapet, they will be machine gun, machined down. So they don't speak. So everybody knew that Nord Stream 1 was blown up by the West, by the Americans. But everybody was looking at everybody else. Will, everybody, will anyone say it? And because, you know, nobody was saying it, nobody said it. 
cowardice in action. We need a Navarro Germany, by the sounds of it. We would have had Michael. Yes, we do. We would have had Herr Michael Walker saying it was. A, a I CIA. have to say there are there are independent media in Germany, and they are extremely, extremely courageous, and they do a very good job. But they they are struggling, and they are struggling because you know this. In the end, Britain, with all its faults, remains a better place to be a lefty than Germany. This is why Marx is buried here and he's not buried in Germany. You know, your job as Novara, if you were functioning in Germany, would have been impossible. Go on. That's well, an interesting point. We are going, the nine and I are going to, to Germany on Friday morning uh, for DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement. We are going to run in the European Parliament elections as Mera, Mera 25, our electoral wing, in Germany as well as in Italy, as in, um, as in uh, Greece. And if you were still in the European Union, given Keir Starmer, we'd probably have to run here as well. Um, and I'm telling you, our comrades now in Germany are sending me frantic messages full of angst that um, uh, the theaters that we have booked for our events are all threatening to keep the, the, their doors shut, their doors shut because of uh, me being portrayed as um, an anti-Semite simply because... Because, you see, the, the thing in Germany now is you, you can only talk about genocide if you support it. If you oppose genocide, you cannot speak the word. If you say, Netanyahu, yes, go, 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 take Gaza, bomb them, it's fine. If you want to talk about Israel from the river to the sea, huh, and apartheid from the river to the sea, it's fine in German to say that. But if you say, look, I'm against apartheid and I'm against genocide, and I want universal basic human rights from the river to the sea, you're banned because you're, you're an anti-Semite. So we'll have to face that on Friday. So you don't think Navarro could have existed in Germany? That's a really interesting point. And it says something... I think you would simply have very serious... I don't think you would be able to get this theatre to do what we're doing here tonight in Berlin. That's really interesting. Because often, you know, on the left, we'll, we'll criticise the UK, the British state, etc., or the British national character or whatever. Yeah, but that's, you know, you, you want to be exceptional. You know, British exceptionalism cuts both ways. <laughs> you know, the British Empire used to think that it was the best, the, the, the yeah. brightest and the biggest, right? And then the left wanted to think that Britain was the worst place. We are so exceptional because we're the worst. <laughs> you are neither the best nor the worst. I love it. But no, I think there is something to it, and it's going to sound sort of like some Burkean conservative, but I think there is something to it, which actually, there is an instinct in this country where most of the time, somebody who disagrees with you will still say, well, you're allowed to have that point of view, fine, as long as you're not hurting anybody. Whereas actually, from, from the outside looking into someone like Germany over the last six months, the last year, that is simply not the case there. No, there not. is this deep instinct of conformism to stop people from saying things they disagree with. Indeed. Uh, you know, this is a very um, sensitive issue. For instance, I don't agree with banning Nazis. I know that doesn't sound very popular. But I'm a liberal. I want to defeat Nazis. I want to, to beat them into a pulp. <laughs> Not physically, you know, in the, in the polling stations. I want them to disappear in the polling stations. I want to defeat them culturally. I want to defeat them in the, in the struggle for ideas. 
banning them, you know, effectively saying that you don't have the right to run in elections. What are they doing to Trump now in the United States where they're trying to get him off the ballot? That is a catastrophe. This is legitimizing Trump. It is legitimizing the people who support Trump because they think that he's being hounded by the establishment to which he belongs. I don't believe in banning opinions that may make me feel uncomfortable. You know, this idea about a safe space. We need to have a safe space where we don't get triggered by things we don't like. That's crap. But so you see, in, in, in Germany now they have this alternative for Deutschland. It's a pretty vile party. It's quasi-Nazi, fascistic, horrible. Like the ones we have in Greece's parliament, the ones that beat us and won our seats, right? I don't want these people to be banned. I, I want to win them back. I want to defeat them. I don't want to see them in prison simply because they are Nazis. I want to see them in prison if they raise their hand and strike anyone as the Golden Dawn murderers did. But, you know, we should, as the left, be, because the liberals are not liberals, as we were saying before, we need to preserve basic political rights even for the people who are vile and who say obnoxious things. In Germany, the moment they started thinking of banning the AFD, they have 20%. What, what's going to happen if you ban a party of 20%? Then you delegitimize democracy. That is the greatest gift to the Nazis. Because they can then turn around and say, look, what, what does it mean to be a Democrat? You just ban anyone you disagree with. No, I couldn't agree more. We're going to have to end there and go to questions and hopefully some answers. Jan Varoufakis, a very illuminating hour. journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. Head to navarro.media forward slash support or face the consequences.